mostly familiar faces, I think, in the audience, but I'm Gillian McIntyre from the Education Department. And it's a particular delight, delight tonight to introduce Dr. Augustus Casely Hayford. Um, we were in Chicago yesterday, we were in Chicago this morning, and we're here this evening, and you'll be in London tomorrow. So <laughs> I'm going to read Gus's bio, which he probably doesn't really want me to do, but I don't know how else you're going to know all of the things he does, which are many and wonderful. Dr. Augustus Casely Hayford is the Executive Director, Arts Strategy, Arts Council, England. Prior to joining the Arts Council this March, he was Executive Director of INIVA, the Institute of International Visual Arts, a London-based arts organization with a particular emphasis on international practice. Prior to joining INIVA, he was the Director of Africa 05, the largest and most significant African arts season ever hosted in Britain, when over 150 venues from British Museum to South London Gallery in partnership with BBC and Starbucks put on events to celebrate African culture. He has written, presented, and directed a variety of programs for radio and television, including an award-winning South Bank show on African art for LWT, a documentary on Chris Ophelia for Channel 4 during his Turner Prize year, and several series on African culture for the World Service. He is currently a judge for the Channel 4 series, Big Art Project, which will be screened in November 2007 and follows six public art commissions, from instigation to completion, across the UK. Gus is a spokesperson on issues spanning art, culture, diversity, and international practice. He has written widely, including a collaboration with Nelson Mandela for the United Nations. He also works for Sotheby's, lectures at Goldsmiths, Birkbeck, Birkbeck and the University of Westminster. He is also currently a CLAW Fellow, a Heritage Lottery Fund Special Advisor, and he sits on the Mayor's Commission for African and Asian Heritage at the Greater London Authority. He is a member of the National Museum Directors Committee on Diversity. He sits on a variety of committees, including Tate Britain Advisory Council and African Express Music Festival's Media Committee. Gus. Thank you very much, Gillian. But that biog was actually written by my mother, so I wouldn't <laughs> believe any of it. Um, I actually flew into Toronto. Um, I can't actually remember now. I think it was about... Tuesday. It was Tuesday. I, so I'm still I'm suffering from... I don't know if it's reverse jet lag or something, but I'm, but I'm slightly sort of disoriented by the, the time changes. But one of the things that um, the one of the things that really did orientate me was every time I fly to Chicago, there's a terrible storm, and I, I, I kind of sat in the Toronto airport just watching all this rain come down, and and it, it did remind me about um, just weather, how powerful it is. And one of one of the, the the things for me as a as a British person is that we're constantly thinking about weather, but just to see that weather, that Toronto storm, I mean, it was just very, very powerful indeed. And it did contextualize to me just how s subtle the moderations of the, the differences between the weather in the winter that we have in Britain and in the summer. But it also reminded me that even in these times of global warming, that in Britain we, haven't, we don't have any sense of the sense of extremes that we get in different parts of the world. And our summers 
are still calibrated against one really glorious summer in 1976. And, <laughs> and for, for, for me, I mean, that was, it was a very important summer because um, um, it's, it's, it's lodged in the memories of most British people as probably being the special summer. And it's, a, it's the summer against which all other summers are judged. And it, w it was not just gloriously long, but it also had this um, a, a terrorizing soundtrack of, of, of punk. And um, it, it was a sort of punk that was a sort of imperializing force. It, was, it actually seemed to be drowning out the, the very last embers of soul. And, and even though most of us actually sort of remember soul and afro and, and flares as being part of um, 60s, uh, the 60s, that they were still everywhere in the 70s. And this, this, this punk, this sound from the, the streets um, just seemed to sort of wash through London and it, it, it just brought a completely new political agenda. And with that New Age rage, there was a sense of a new kind of suburban politics that seemed to drift into into London and to take root in a very powerful way. And um, that very long, hot, perfect summer was also the perfect propagator for some of the changes that happened that uh, we're still actually, in a way, being deeply affected by. I think any Londoner who lived through it will remember it, not just for the heat, but it was also because it was the year when we British that we really became aware of the complexity of the politics of multiculturalism. Um, during the spring, um, a series called Love Thy Neighbor, it was a television comedy um, in which a left-wing working-class bigot racially abused his, his black Tory-supporting neighbor. And this was on primetime television, and it was meant to be for laughs. laughs. But this was the year, 1976, when they finally cut that show. And they cut it because there were protests, but there had been protests since it had first been put on. But there was a sense that times were changing. And the program presented a very odd sort of equal opportunities racism. The black family were abused, but they in turn abused the white family. But somehow, watching it, I do remember thinking that someone being called Chalky just wasn't quite equivalent to what the black characters were called. And this was on pre-watershed television. And it made a kind of ambient racial terrorizing of black and minority ethnic people, not just funny, but somehow acceptable. And in those days, there was no such thing as political correctness. But there was this new concept of multiculturalism um, and I can remember back as far as the late 60s, um, uh, and there was a politician then called Roy Jenkins, and he gave governmental support for the very first time um, to this radical idea that it was self-evidently a good thing to embrace the culture of other people. And Jenkins argued that integration should not be seen as a, a, fra a flattening process of assimilation but as equal opportunity accompanied by cultural diversity in an atmosphere of mutual tolerance. And that was the first time that I'd ever heard this term cultural diversity. And it was just so intriguing. Even the very first time I heard it, and I was very young, I just thought, 
gosh, that's something which is really going to define an era. And he advised us to go to the British Museum to see the, the great civilizations of the world side by side. He argued that anyth if anything could convince us of the value of multiculturalism, that certainly would. And he, and he saw immediately that the broader issue of race and integration was possibly a struggle for what we were prepared to accept as being part of mainstream culture. This was not just an argument about color of skin. It was about ideas. But it was also about representation, culture, and power. By the mid-70s, what had seemed to be a revolutionary vision when Jenkins had first spoken it, had begun to take hold within the mainstream. The growing number of immigrants and the growing politicization of the young meant that change was inevitable, but it was also clear that culture would be the battleground. So I was advised during the summer of 76 by uh, my art teacher that I should go and visit the British Museum, take up Jenkins' challenge, and to see the brave old world. But I was told when I arrived at the British Museum, when I asked where I could find African materials, I was told that work from Africa, Asia, and other non-Western colonies was actually now in the Museum of Mankind. There was in fact now seen the opportunity of creating more space in a particular institution that would mean that we could explore the particularities and the complexity of non-Western art in one venue. Even at the age of 12, I wasn't convinced by, by this. There's, I can remember the chap at the information desk saying this, with, saying this with a kind of sigh, because it was evident that he'd obviously said it to an awful lot of people. But I remember looking over his shoulder, and there was a sign to, to, toward the Egypt collection. And I remember thinking, how is it that Egypt is part of the Western canon? And I also began to think about what multiculturalism within the arts might mean, how a celebration of difference could reinforce or underline, justify prejudice, and how it could leave problematic categorizations unquestioned. And these were some of the things that motivated me to visit my first Notting Hill Carnival in the summer of 1976. I wanted to see what it would actually be like not to be different, to be a central part of the narrative, to be core to the script. And I can remember it was just getting dark when the rioting began. I stood on the porch and watched pink paraffin Molotov cocktails fly out of the air and decant burning streams of kerosene down the road toward police lines. Every time a bottle burst on the road, a cheer would go up. It was in a strange way, very, very beautiful. I watched it for a long time. I was about to become a teenager, and I was mesmerized with both fear and excitement. At the time, it all made a very odd sort of sense. The riot might have been spontaneous, but the anger was born out of years of building resentment. The local population were just tired, tired of being scared, tired of being marginalized. During one of the lulls, a policeman ran up the hill past me. He stopped just for a moment 
but he stopped and he looked back and then he ran on. But as he looked back, I recognized a look on his face. It was a face and a look that I knew well. The look was fear. For me, that subtle but memorable exchange made sense of that momentous summer. The silo walls of multicultural London were smoldering. It would not be contained. The following week, in the final cricket test match, one of the greatest West Indian cricket tours ever, Michael Holding, the Caribbean paceman, single-handedly destroyed England with a devastating display of almost imperious bowling. I didn't know how it would change, but I knew that this bit of the world would never, ever be the same. Twenty years later, I was called by the British Museum to consult on the move of the Africa collections from the old Museum of Mankind back to the main Russell Square um, collections. All around us, multiculturalism, that great thing that Roy Jenkins had defined 20 years ago, was being declared dead. Yasmin Alibri-Brown, who's one of our most respected um, British East, A East African Asian commentators, wrote a book, After Multiculturalism, which defined this particular moment. And she'd written and she'd begun to forge a new kind of language for talking about race and culture. And Trevor Phillips, who's the director of the Commission for Racial Equality, or he was then, the, um, he concurred in a number of speeches that this was a, was a seminal moment. And they, like the rest of us, traveled on London tubes. And they knew that the demography of London and the confidence of minorities had changed radically. They didn't talk about multiculturalism anymore. They wrote about this new thing, diversity. The acceptance of an underpinning foundation of ideas within which we were all celebrated. But we were celebrating also the plurality of cultural output. This was about accommodation, assimilation, cooperation, not just about tolerance. This was about breaking down barriers, not supporting them. For cultural inst institutions, that actually posed a very stark set of questions. The British state collection of art is divided between a number of collections, some material culture, some visual art. The great contemporary visual art collections are housed in institutions like the Tate Gallery, and they saw the modernist project that underpinned its remit as being almost exclusively a Western phenomenon. This in impacted on its understanding of how it could accommodate diversity and how it might broaden its collecting ambitions to incorporate the new Britons, some of whom who, knew, who drew inspiration and contextualization from non-Western sources, and others who were genetically black or minority ethnic, but did not convey that in their work. And although the British Museum was about to begin to reabsorb the, its ethnographic collection into its broader collection, there was no strategy for building a link with the contemporary, or thinking about how artists of African descent might actually think, might actually place themselves within this new context.
The British Museum Africa team radically argued for the introduction of contemporary work into the British Museum collection as a way of creating an aesthetic interface between this problematic collection and the public. This was wonderful in a sense that it represented the building of, for the, of the first structured collection of African and black British artists' work by a national museum or gallery. But it was also problematic because the work was being collected by what was then a department of, of ethnography. One of the artists suggested was the ceramic artist Magdalena Dundo. Central to Ndundo's investigations is a constant reconsideration of where her work sits in relation to African art history. Her ceramics are almost aesthetic allegories of the body and they're complex multi-layered fugues that tie her work into a broad range of political and psychosexual debates and art historical themes. A close look at a single piece reveals the subtle lines and barely suggested undulations that are reductions of complex accommodations of internal tension and resolutions of bodily incompatibility. Her work can be deeply innovative, yet simultaneously radiate the wisdom and gravitas of age. In a single line or shape, dialectical oppositions are imploded and collapsed. Her pot's small distended bellies, ripe with pregnant possibility, heavy with corruption and hunger, sublimate death into life, pain into beauty. And as she once said to me, because I have always wanted to celebrate that part of humanity that fights to overrule and override injustices, my drive is to celebrate the richness of all arts in Africa, but I've never wanted that to be overtly spelled out or to be overly evident. And so a swollen silhouette seems to whisper about Africa's problems, yet scream about the continent's potential, effortlessly balancing opposites elegantly containing forms that ought to repel each other. Each accommodation is considered and then contained, radiating the, the electricity of counter-arguments, cohering in a state of forced containment. The gunmetal finish is made to seem impossibly brittle and desiccated. The tiny, almost imperceptible base somehow supports a bulbous, beautiful body, an erect nipple that on reflection might be a scarification lesion, stands proud beneath the soft, vulnerable beauty of a neck that supports the echo of ancient wars in a throwing knife beak. The whole effect is, at least to me, nostalgic, nostalgic yet at the same time modern. Shapes borrowed from ancient throwing knives and traditional reliquary figures are mechanical and frighteningly futuristic. An organic and beak-shaped rim melts and morphs into the architectural sophistication of Mangbetu hairstyles. Undundo's ceramics speak a powerful hybrid language that create many difficult cultural conciliations, the kind of accommodations that are an unavoidable part of being an African living in the West today. My mother, who visited the gallery, said that as the first object that she stopped to look at, that it created an intellectual framework through which she could revisit the pottery and weaponry without, without anxiety of her previous ethnographic muse museum visits. She could choose to enjoy them through a veil of Magdalene's complex incorporations. She could see the work was alive and the gallery was alive. It was a testimony to Africans, not to Africa's colonial history. 
It was a testimony to art history, not to ethnography. Once you're aware of that, the gallery becomes a self-aware conception, a place in which, in place in which our position is absolutely cru crucial. It is our perspective that completes the gallery. It forced even the most casual of visitors to be aware of the broader critical dialogue. The whole space became an installation, a critique of, the, of a particular kind of diversity which curated minorities into a space that the mainstream was comfortable with. It was also a victory for the anonymous ethnographic object, for a rereading of these objects. Today, these complex theses of Adundo contains, contains and curates the gallery in a dynamic way. It's a portal, it's a portal through which we can gaze at the other objects in the gallery and the display and display perspectives that once that once tainted the objects. Armed with Adundo's view of the art historical landscape, it seems that today it is the curator who is stuffed and exposed by the awareness of the canny artist. And one of the things that I've felt delighted about with the British Museum project is that the African gallery's success is that it helped to straddle the gap between um, what we might conventionally see as being an art gallery position and an ethnographic museum position. They've adopted the strengths of both and possibly some of the problems of both. Um, they've opened up the curation to a process um, that actually allows in also many voices and many uh, diverse voices. The curators realized that only through the introduction of contemporary work that they could represent diverse perspectives or at least acknowledge the contingent nature of interpretations that were offered. Accepting the idea of a gallery as an unfinished project, as an open forum, a project that will continue to change and evolve over time. In the space, the contingent, almost diffident nature of the curatorial approach is always obvious. The exhibition narrative might be obvious, even at times provocative, but, is, but it is actually conjectured as an authored perspective within a framework of conscious dialogue, which made the visitors feel informed and yet involved in the debate, not intellectually regimented by a one-way stream of factual absolutes. But it also, through the contemporary art, made it feel possible to see that the containing silos of, diver of the diversity project could potentially be as problematic as, as, as the things that they were actually set up to break down. The year that the British Museum collection moved, I also spent some time making a documentary. Um, I was actually working with a very different kind of um, ethnographer, uh, the artist Chris Afili. And I, and I spent quite a bit of, um, of, of that summer working um, with Chris Afili in his King's Cross studio. And, and the King's Cross of the 90s, um, it's not like the King's Cross of today. I mean, those of you who know it, um, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't the gateway to Europe because now there's a big Eurostar station there and nor did it feel like it was going to be the imminent home of, 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 of the Arsenal Football Club and it, which have, they've built this wonderful stadium just to the north of King's Cross. At that time it was just a, a run-down intersection um, where uh, a number of small-time drug dealers and end-of-the-road prostitutes worked the station platforms and that they did this in the kind of perfect sort of um, shaft type of 
a backdrop of grimy streets. And um, it was, in a way, very romantic, but also very scary. And, uh, and after leaving art college, Chris Ophelia found a studio in a large ramsackle Victorian block um, um, just behind the station. And, and I think Ophelia felt in King's Cross that it had a kind of a whiff of Gotham City. It was almost, it was almost um, fictional in, in, it, in its griminess. Um, and it was almost like possibly um, Har Harlem, but not the Harlem of reality, but the Harlem of film and fiction. And through Chris's eyes, it, it had a kind of urban romance and an authenticity that may have been ugly, but it was also somehow extremely magical. And from that ambient vulnerability and the latent threat, Ophelia excavated a number of broken but very beautiful narratives that he layered into his work to create the complex enigmatic canvases for which he won the Turner Prize that year. Ophelia found ways of trapping the energy of the streets under layers of resin and glitter, turning the sleaze and grime into beautiful icons of complexity. But Chris also foresaw the limits of the diversity project and he used to ask me, why should certain people be made to feel that their cultural output is somehow a subset of the broader underpinning Western culture, or that they, would they, or that they should be forever framed as part of the culture of their ethnicity? There's no discrete, separate, self-contained, unchanging cultures, he'd say. Culture simply reflects and creates change. It is not defined by change. It is change. He said that creating a hybrid gallery museum, a space in which the material culture and the visual art could sit together, that it actually raised the bar on what museums might do, who their audiences are, and how contemporary art can reframe material culture and ask questions about the space and the job of the curator. And it, it did make me think, made me think, God, have I been doing some of the things that I've been I've been trying to fight against, have I actually been in a way um, recreating them in a different way? And, um, and, I, and I, I did actually think that it's fascinating that a lot of the debates around these areas are so successfully um, articulated by artists in a way that thinkers rarely can actually um, deal with these things. And that I did think that possibly one of the things it did reinforce is the idea that artists are very good at delivering some of those sorts of subtle contextualizations that academics, curators, anthropologists, and ethnographers have been struggling to do through um, information panels, but could do it in ways that were very, very powerful, but also which could dynamically change in relationship to the person that was viewing them. And I thought, what if we were additionally to create a program that brought to Britain many of the most articulate and gifted African artists simply to talk about their work, to build an ambient art historical tractatus that could reframe Africa. What if we use this as a platform to bring new audiences into spaces, to find funding to create fellowships and professional development opportunities for artists that would change the way that we in Britain perceive Africa and do it once and for all? and do it in partnership with the whole sector so that it changed the sector sustainably. And this was when the impetus for this idea of Africa 05 was created. 
And it took three years to um, come to fruition, three years to develop. Um, and during that three years that Africro 5 um, expanded beyond the visual arts to incorporate film, craft, design, literature, to include theatre, ballet, every art form, and also to include partners from the conventional mainstream, um, such as the British Museum, the South Bank Centre, um, the Victorian Albert Museum, the National Portrait Gallery, but also some of the slightly sort of more edgy and trendy um, bits of the, uh, of, of the British cultural landscape, like the Whitechapel, but also some of the very, very conventional ones, like the Royal Agricultural Show, that they were very keen to get involved. Um, but they were also one of the great things, is it created a continuity from that practice all the way out into some of the, uh, some of the sorts of, 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 of cultural institutions that had never, never previously partnered with the mainstream. Hundreds, literally hundreds, of community groups that many of these institutions weren't aware of began to join the partnership. Um, and what all of the organizations had in common was that they shared um, a wish to create really great programming that would demonstrate the very best of African cultural practice. And some of this was aimed directly at trying to work with BME communities. But most of it was just aimed to draw in audiences and to work with them to, um, um, to the benefit of the broader um, cultural community. And um, I'm really proud that we had almost no criteria for the partners that joined the Africa 05 um, season. And um, by the time that we actually launched, we had more than 150 partners, very nearly um, 1,000 events. And the only partner that we turned down um, during the time that I worked on it was, was the CIA. Um, and one of the great things that we, that we said was that we would have no hierarchies within the partnership, that we would, every single organization, however big or however small, had the same space, the same status. And everyone had something to learn. And we tried to effectively become a conduit for knowledge, for the dispersal of knowledge. Um, and it worked very, very successfully. And, and Africa 05 was housed um, within the Arts Council of England offices. And we had a core team, even though it was 1,000 events, 150 organizations, we had a core team of two. Um, and we dealt with the coordination of the activities and with the audience development, the public relations, and the website. Um, but we um, brought in expertise where we needed it. Um, and, and I was very, very proud that um, in galvanizing the sector in this way to begin to think about one issue at one single moment, that um, the day that the website launched, um, we had 100,000 hits on the website for a new website. And exhibitions like um, Africa Remix, which the Haywood um, initiated and showed as their contribution to um, the Africa 05 season, that that broke their own, um, um, their own um, records. The Depth of Field exhibition, which is a fantastic um, um, 
contemporary photography exhibition that was shown at the South London Gallery. And this is a gallery which is in an area which has a very, very high proportion of, of, of people of Nigerian and Ghanaian descent. And yet this gallery very, very rarely gets those people into its space. But with, under this umbrella, um, with all of these different institutions working together, with a just a general ambience, a feeling that it was right, um, it was right to begin to focus in this new way on Africa, that that exhibition drew in um, a similar number of, of, of people to, um, to any other exhibition that the South London Gallery hosts, but most of the people who actually visited that exhibition were there in that institution for the very first time. Um, but we also did events in unconventional places, and um, you know, I, I was very pleased that we did something called um, a, a Salon Afrique, which was um, um, a space where people could just come and be, and um, we did things like hairdressing, um, book readings, um, and this was a space that became a kind of a drop-in, an informal drop-in zone for, 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 for young people. And it was getting 22,000 people visited that a month. And we managed to attract a, a significant amount of sponsorship um, and promotional um, support. The whole project was funded um, only um, to the tune of, of £150,000 by the Arts Council. But we managed to lever with, um, with that support um, many millions of pounds worth of sponsorship and, and um, additional monies from commercial organizations. Um, and we created partnerships um, with organizations like the BBC, Time Out, Starbucks, large organizations who also worked together in ways that they'd never worked together before. But they were doing it because they too realized that these were audiences that they hadn't conventionally had in their had had um, working in their institutions or um, enjoying um, their output, and they wanted to work with this um, alliance of cultural institutions to begin to find ways of forging relationships with them. And the BBC were fantastic. They supported this partnership in ways that they'd never they'd never actually worked um, in these ways before. Um, that every single bit of the BBC, I mean, the BBC seems like a kind of coherent animal, but this is an organization that is immense. And this was the very first time that every single bit, radio, television, the website, every single one of its channels, and it has um, about 14 channels, um, television channels, it has um, a huge number of radio channels, every single channel put on programming supporting um, Africa 05. And so for them, that it really tested them how they actually worked internally and created new ways in which they could, they could develop programming. Um, and that they began to see the benefits of how culture could help to bring new audiences to, to, to the sorts of things that, that they were doing as well. And some of the sorts of things that they did helped us to get to audiences that we'd never we would never have thought were, were possible to penetrate, that we had, um, I mean, these might not be programs you're aware of, but um, um, some of the soaps, um, some of them, um, they're, they're not necessarily things that I watch, uh, 
I just say that now, but very, very popular soaps like Holby City, that, which is a hospital soap, that that had an, uh, an African theme. And the beauty of it was that this has huge numbers of people watching it. And at the end of the program, they would say that there was a, an Africa theme in which there was a cultural theme. But at the end of the program, they would actually say, do visit this, this website. And then it would connect people into all the cultural possibilities that were going on um, around Britain at the time. There was things like Strictly Come Dancing, which did an African dance season. There was Rolf Harris, who um, um, you might be aware of, and he did an African art um, um, series. Um, uh, the British Museum actually had a garden created outside, it, it's, uh, um, outside the building, and they made a television program about that as well, which had African sculpture in the garden. So that all of these different things were meant to get to different kinds of audiences so that we could cover the complexity of, 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 of the British demography in a variety of different ways and begin to create a, nex a nexus of, of, of engagement um, that was being reinforced at a variety of different levels. Um, but how we captured that was mostly through the website, that people would um, sign up for um, updates on what was happening and where things were happening. That we got um, an organization called Audiences London who, who, who basically that they, um, create, they create structures in, um, for um, capturing demographic data. And they were fantastic because what they can actually do is that they could drill down and work out within almost to street levels the sorts of people that, that live in particular communities. And um, what they helped us to do was to, um, to really target our publicity very, very accurately, which meant that we could, um, when events were going on, that we could get to very, very particular kinds of people that we knew would be interested in, in those events, get them to those events, but then try to use that as a way of, of drawing them into other things. Um, a lot of these things had not been tried before, but the main thing was the coordination um, um, of all of these activities through the one website, and that worked very, very powerfully. But I actually think the most successful aspect of all of this was us actually using um, culture as a lever for bringing in commercial <coughs> partnerships. And this worked spectacularly, that we worked with Time Out and we worked with Starbucks, we worked with Books, etc. Um, and that these big organizations, we didn't put a penny into these partnerships, but Starbucks printed um, a million cup holders which had the website address so that people were would go into Starbucks and they would have this sense of um, that this was something which was big. But if these weren't people who wanted to, to go to cultural in, um, institutions, that we actually created within a number of Starbucks actual, um, um, there were film showings, there were um, there some areas that showed photography, but we actually extended the reach of the offer of Africa 05. Um, and they invested money in projects and in artists. And this was also the year that for the very first time that they worked with Ethiopian um, coffee makers to create, um, to build a different kind of relationship with those, those coffee growers that was based um, much more, um, it was actually more, it was calibrated much more to the benefit of, 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 of the growers than to Starbucks. 
And, and I, was, I was immensely proud of the way in which it, it, it worked together. But by the end of 2005, that, um, I was exhausted. And I, I did actually also think that um, I wanted to, having gone through this, that I wanted to refocus my energies on thinking about the art. And um, finishing Africa 05, I was delighted that um, um, I got what was my very first um, full-time job, um, which was working as the director of, of, of Innova. And diversity, I suppose, at this point, is also that is begun to be challenged. I mean, this whole idea of moving from multiculturalism to diversity. But as I joined Innova, this institution that has, that was in a way set up during that period when diversity was coming to the fore, that as I joined it, diversity was beginning to be challenged by this new thing of interculturalism. And it was a, there's a growing acceptance that the idea of cultural, uh, 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 that cultural phenomena, that it, culture may well have multiple intersecting sources of inspiration and, and, and creation, and that had to be accepted. And that even the most fundamental underpinning values may be ongoingly renegotiated by interventions from a broad range of sources. And, and this is actually, I think it's actually quite a fundamental shift away from the, the, the kind of the basics of, of diversity. And I also began to think about that a particular kind of campaign, that the intellectual guerrilla war that, that for most of the last century had been waged by certain um, people within the cultural sector, had been replaced by a different kind of engagement. It was end, the end of that very crude fight. I think that a lot of people thought that they were no longer going to be satisfied by defining their cultural practice within the margins or under a broader umbrella as a subset or, as, or to be diffused into others as part of a soup of cultures. And I think it's tenable to see the culture of minorities as the, it's just simply not tenable anymore to see the culture of minor, minorities as a constantly shifting beach line and that the traditional culture as being as, of, of the mainstream as being the kind of bedrock or the hinterland. The idea of a stable mainstream founded upon a fixed core set of ideals and beliefs against which everything else is measured and accommodated must be seen as old-fashioned. Um, it might be comforting, but I, I do actually think it's a kind of delusion. And I hope that now that we can begin to accept and hopefully embrace that the idea of culture being much more complicated than that and so joining Rivington Place at this time, I did think that it was actually time that we actually began to challenge some of those old, old ways of doing things. And it was an opportunity for us with a new building um, to begin to, um, to forge a different kind of relationship with the sector. And I actually think that, um, I actually think that in a way that the whole diversity moment has actually, um, it has been damaging and it's also been damaged itself. And, and it seems that the inexorable trajectory of political correctness um, has actually forced it into a state where it's, 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 it's slightly become um, untenable. Um, in Britain at least, it's, 
it, it, it has been heavily ridiculed and the papers very often the right-wing press when they talk about diversity that they do it with a particular tone that makes it very very difficult to talk about um, neutrally and I, and I think that damage is not just about language the damage is, is I think it's actually that there's been a political pincer movement and that the conservative establishment have, have, have of course tried to, to denigrate diversity whenever they've had the chance but I also think that there have been very, very fundamental demographic shifts in Britain. And a lot of people have now thought it's time to re-engage, to find different ways of dealing with these issues. And a lot of people have begun to accept that generating formalized ways to accommodate other people and then also not resourcing or embracing the complexity of that responsibility, that it, what it can actually do is to exacerbate the problem. And I think if we're to convince young people that they can make a really meaningful contribution to the soul of contemporary Western countries, we might need to actually give up a little bit, give up some of what we value. I don't think that, particularly not in Britain of today, that we can actually afford to give birth to another generation of alien natives, young people who feel closer to cultures on the other side of earth than they do to the culture into which they're born. And I actually think that this is a generation that, uh, that, that then they are not going to be satisfied with defining their cultural practice within the margins or under a broader umbrella as a subset. Um, and perhaps this could be the beginning of the end of the Western notion of mainstream as the fixed frame through which we can judge difference. And I hope that it's the beginning of it collapsing to be replaced by a sea of complex overlapping cultural gravities, absorbing and repelling, collapsing and expelling, allowing individuals to navigate the possibilities and make the decisions about how they, how they engage. And I think that we can, to some extent, all be part of the renegotiation of that space. And so joining Innova at that time and coming to a stage where I was beginning to think these things, I did think, how are we going to turn this new building, this new opportunity into something? Creating new frontiers, questioning um, the conventional, forging relationships in unexpected ways and places. And it's always tried to protect the artist from either being immured in difference or lost in the imperializing universality. Um, and we've sought to, to do that by colluding with artists in unusual ways, in un unexpected places. Um, and it might be a small institution of only about 25 people, but in its scope and its philosophy, in its ambition, it's a very, very big institution international in its perspective and aspiration and one of the ways in which it is international is that it tries its best to recontextualize the local the diverse the intercultural into the context of the international where it makes a different kind of dynamic sense and and so when i took over at innova i mean i realized i was taking this incredible um responsibility um and I thought, where do we go from here? And I actually thought, 
we're not going to we're not going to change radically. I actually believe that there the landscape has changed. But I actually think that the new innova should be innova but even more so. I actually believe that in an era of intercultural debate that there absolutely is a need for an arts organization that not only shows and promotes the best international visual arts practice but also which works to facilitate the debates around it. Not just widening understanding but broadening the constituencies involved in the conversations. And I was determined that the new innova would work with artists, curators, academics, arts, policy makers, companies, public service providers, social entrepreneurs, but do it in a campaigning way, hosting debates, driving diversity and international arts agenda forward. And I wanted to see Innova becoming a lobbying agency for the visual arts, giving a variety of people the space to think aloud and to chart new paths through critical theory, building partnerships and across and beyond the sector to negotiate and create really new thinking, forging a seamless lobbying and innovative force that is as potential, that is as, as, as potent in the virtual arena as in the actual, and working with a broad range of organizations to take art out beyond this new wonderful building into communities and to offer a range of constituencies a meaningful ongoing relationship with the organization. And, and we want to do that particularly by bringing new talent to the fore, some of those forgotten names back into focus, and to continually be adding to the, to, to the, um, um, to the addenda of art history. And, and this building that it's um, designed by David Adjay, and it's more or less just being completed now. Um, if you are in London, it's... Um, it's in the sort of Shoreditch area, which is in the East End, one of the trendiest bits of London. And this fascia now has been now finished in um, two tones of, 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 of um, precast concrete that was, that was um, shipped from Holland. Every single piece on that fascia is different. As you, as you go up, the, the perspective is created so that um, every single floor is... is in reality slightly smaller than the one beneath every single one of these windows um, in height but as you go laterally down the, um, the building as well that each one of those windows gets slightly thinner and that the idea is that it plays with a kind of perspective so the building looks an awful lot bigger than it actually is and that is about Innova's a metaphor for the way in which Innova has worked um, and will continue to work small institution but dealing with diversity and internationalism in a dynamic way. So therefore, levering in, um, levering in influence, but also just being a kind of dynamic force that brings in influences and inspiration from all around the world and, and is far more powerful and potent than it would be if it stood alone. And the first show that at least I had a, show, uh, had a hand in... Um, um, was playing with many of the things that I've been talking about. Um, this was someone, Idris Khan, who was both local and international, and that he pushed the debates beyond the intercultural into the international. And Idris Khan's work offers um, an interesting dialogue um, between the international and local, between the global and the intercultural. Khan's work 
it, it is, a, in a way, a critical, a critical um, narrative around culture and identity. This isn't Magdalena Dundo's rewriting of non-Western art history, and this isn't Chris Ophelia's critique of value and context. This is the aestheticization of discourse itself, of the rhythms and themes that underpin meaning and understanding. It's rooted precisely, culturally, by its inspiration, but grounded aesthetically in its manifestation. I mean, for me at least, this piece, it was a work of great beauty that plays with multiple musical narratives by alluding to our own multiple understandings and the complex cultural genealogies. This is the crossroads of the intercultural debate, which I think has been crafted into film. And for Innova, an international agency operated with, with, with limited capacity in an increasingly complex arts ecology, digital media and the internet offer us ways to bridge the gap between the local and the international to broker a new kind of internationalism. And so one of the things I was really determined with that I'd learnt with, learnt working on um, Africa 05 is that the internet and, the di and digital television could offer us a new kind of way of communicating and developing a different kind of relationship with diversity. And one of the things I've found interesting is just thinking about um, how digital, the, the rise of, of, of the internet and, and digital possibilities has, has changed the way that we communicate and think about ourselves, that it pulls us into communities beyond our geographic neighbourhoods, into broader networks that might reflect the specificity of our interests and affiliations, but they do it in ways that are previously unimaginable. And these groups may well reflect large global trends or socio-religious affiliations that may well sit in tension with local politics. Um, and I, I think that this has helped to create an interesting tension between the rigid old-fashioned sociologies and their con concomitant marketing categories. And one of the things that I think is interesting is that we have to learn to deal with this. The repercussions of not dealing with it are immense. I mean, as we've seen from in Britain that um, um, recently that we've, we've suffered with, um, with bombings, with, with um, um, a rise of, 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 of a number of, of, of right-wing and racist part parties. And, and that partially has been about um, a particular kind of, of, of of lack of resolution of some of the problems that I've been talking about. But one of the things that I found fascinating is that in this new digital landscape that there are possibilities for engaging in this way that, that we, we really do need to take advantage of. The new interactive digital arena allows us to build and holds on to, to, to new narratives and to, lead, to leave traditional affiliations and sociologies behind and to become different sorts of people in different places. For the digital generation, cultural affiliation can be inverted. Their geography and local sociology need not define people. They have the freedom and ability to choose and define their broader culture, to create their own spaces. And today, one of the things I found fascinating, having started my work at the British Museum, that today the those spaces that they aren't the biggest cultural spaces. The Louvre and the British Museum aren't the spaces that define our sense of culture. The new spaces are iTunes, they're MySpace, they're Flickr. 
These spaces allow us, every single one of us, to become a curator. They allow, they allow us to talk to the world, to remodel it, to, to suit us. If we wish to exist in an audience of one, we can do. The technology facilitates the expression of massive individuality, and it also gives us the ability to communicate directly with millions of people. Most of us may choose to listen to our music, to our music alone, most of the time, and to, uh, to some extent, I guess, that the headphone has replaced the concert hall um, and the iTunes, the record store. And if, if one of the things I find wonderful is you, if you log on to Amazon, it will suggest something for us to buy based on our previous purchases. You know, these are all things which, do, which suggest a different kind of demographic engagement. We can actually sit in a demography of one if we want. Within that context, race, religion, sex, sexuality, they're important to who we are, to defining the communications that surround, the cult, uh, surround culture. But as we consume and digest culture, we can choose to be who we wish. And in the West, many of the generation that have grown up with these digital possibilities feel that they can proactively define or redefine their cultural affiliations if they choose. Their culture, as it might be conventionally conceived, doesn't define or contain them, not in the way that it did their parents. Culture doesn't have to sit as a concomitant of the classical so sociological structures. It can manifest itself through the nebulous digital relationships that are renegotiated by individuals who make and consume it. This, is, this fluidity goes beyond the realms of multiculturalism and diversity, and it tests even the notions of the intercultural. This kind of interaction is highly complex and fluid because it allows us to choose to subscribe at personal levels of negotiation. And I love the idea of this kind of emancipation because I, I personally have spent my career defined by either my identity or by my area of delivery diversity. And I actually now, I really do just want to stand up and be me to create a direct existential relationship with my culture and also my audiences. Um, and I don't think that many people want to be framed through um, the frame of sociology. Multiculture, diversity, interculture, all presume that we come to culture in discrete groups as sociologists. But think about what drove you to your last cultural event. I actually think that we're more com complex than that. We're individuals who even in a group experience culture that way. And, I, and so I actually, I'm not sure what historians are call, will call it, but I do actually think that we're reaching a point of, of, of change. And I, one of the things I found fascinating is that reading some contemporary military theorists and that they define this period as a period of non-polarity. An era, an era of complex overlapping multiple cultural affiliations that are constantly shifting and realigning as the big classical 20th century oppositions collapse and unravel into fluid ge ageographic sociologies. And I think probably where once, at least in the 20th century, there was a project, today the underpinning emotions of the Western middle class of reticence, fear, and perhaps a little confusion and I actually think that there's a different kind of moment that's developing. And this is bigger than politics. And this is where it's about us, because it's bigger than politics. This is about culture. 
And as Gordon Brown, who's about to become Britain's new Prime Minister, has said that the next big international front is, that's going to open up will be in a new theatre, a new theatre of war, a cultural one. And I actually think that much of the change that we're witnessing has been catalyzed by huge post-9-11 geocultural realignments as we emerge into a world that has given fragile coherence by new political centers of gravity and emerging digital possibilities. And I actually think that digital interactive interactivity allows identity to be much more easily redefined by new global dynamics. And it's fostered localized social, sociological flux and a kind of transnational fluidity. And I think both as individuals and groups that we're leaving behind those old sociologies that bred the 20th century's economic alliances. And I think we're finding a new sense of identity that's given a coherence not by our national politics, but by a relationship between personal or localized beliefs and global politics. And carving a new and inclusive sense of culture from such a complex and fluid period, creating a truly coherent national culture from a demography that is a distillation of so many potentially divisive historical and geographic narr narratives is hugely difficult, but it's hugely difficult if we see it as a political problem alone. I actually think that we have a wonderful opportunity, our generation, that we have an opportunity to build a relationship to national identity, to contribute to new identities that look beyond the diversity of multicultural debates, to create through the dynamic possibilities of culture, of technology, of institutions, of new institutions like the one that you're creating here, to accept flux, to accept fluidity. And I've spent much of my career working towards change in the cultural sector, campaigning for greater inclusivity and accessibility. And I've always found it disturbing that in the context of cultural delivery, that exclusive could be a good thing. I know the cold chill of that exclusion only too well. Snobbery and snottiness and downright prejudice have been the pervading hallmarks of too much of our cultural delivery for far too long. And I know it has changed over the last 10 years. And I know it's changed for the better. But today, perhaps the stakes are even higher. And I know that our new Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, that he's right at a national and international level that we need to create dialogues with broader constituencies. And it's not going to be culture, that, it's not going to be politics that in, within which that happens, it's going to be culture. It's the most effective way of us beginning those discussions. And I think that we need to do that through debate, not necessarily big, um, big kind of um, cog-turning debate, but kind of the, some of the subtle debates that happen around really good art artistic practice and the engagement that happens in the, art in the education programs that surround it. And for me, joining the Arts Council of England at this time to lead their arts strategy has been very exciting. It's just as the arts sector in, in, in Britain is beginning to embrace the idea that successful delivery cannot just be about equity of potential access. It also has to be about redefining our cultural offer to make it really relevant to our age. As we've seen to our cost in recent years, culture can be the defining mechanism for asserting who we are and also who we're not. 
but creating ongoing affiliations that pull us into alliances that link us more closely to people on the other side of the earth than to those that we share our streets with isn't good for anyone. The big challenge for cultural institutions today is to find ways of building new spaces for us to engage in discussions that have become too subtle for politics to meaningfully accommodate, but at the same time, far too important for us to ignore. I'll stop there. Thank you very much.